Wow. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Thank you for singing, raising your hands, praising God. Wow, we have a bunch of people watching via live stream and chatting here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, I want to introduce our guest to you. And he sent me a bio, and I can't find it in the setting here. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you from my heart what this guy means to me, and then I'm going to let him do all of the technical letting you know all of his credentials and so forth, okay? His name is Eric Johnson. I've known Eric for several decades. He was, if I'm not mistaken, in youth ministry when I was introduced to the church where he was a youth pastor by my pastor, Earl Johnson, church of about 3,500, 4,000. It was going and blowing. And, and there was just an attraction right away. And then years went by and we didn't see each other. And then through John Master Giovanni and our relationship there, many of you have heard that name, and the organization that I'm part of, which is also out of California, uh, we, we got hooked back up. Here's, I, I want to shorten everything and just say this. I don't know of a more articulate voice to address the issues that this series has been talking about than this man. He's profound in the pulpit. He's profound on the street. He would fit in anywhere. And we were last together in February out in California at our yearly conference. We were getting ready to leave the restaurant and I, had, I was in the parking lot greeting people and he was in the parking lot and I walked up to him and I hugged him and I just held him with a, a man hug. And I mean it was extended. We just held each other. And when I pulled back, I was in tears. I just, um, I so deeply appreciate how he says what he says and the life he lives. And um, I just didn't know what else to do or say except thank you for being you. This is Eric Johnson. Bring him on in. Come on. Is he on the screen here? Eric, I think you'll be on the screen when you talk. Okay, let's be sure we've got him up. There we go. Okay, I've got you on the screen. You got me? All yep. right. All right. Well, good, good morning, everyone. I, uh, I, I have to say that uh, when Jeff was initially sharing this morning, I thought maybe I had logged into Jimmy Kimmel Live on accident. Um, <laughs> love all the laughter. I hope all of my laughter was not like uh, uh, being broadcast throughout <laughs> uh, the, the service. Um, no, it uh, a merry heart does good like a medicine. And I am just so grateful for Jeff and Nina. Um, uh, what amazing role models uh, you both have been in my life. Uh, so a little bit about me. Uh, this is surprisingly now my 45th year in, in ministry, in youth ministry in particular, which is um, miraculous since I'm only in my 30s. But no, uh, but in, in all seriousness, uh, <laughs> um, uh, 
just yesterday, and I, I think this is why uh, the, the subject today is so um, uh, hits home with me. Uh, uh, so a, li a little bit about uh, ministry work. I am the as associate director for a nonprofit called STARS. Uh, we serve marginalized students in Pasadena, California, uh, from kindergarten through college. We follow our students all the way through college. We provide uh, all forms of support in terms of mentoring, uh, after-school programming, college prep. But during the pandemic, we immediately had to pivot into wellness. And so uh, one of our facilities, we converted into a wellness center. Uh, there are so many low-income families that do not have access to uh, food or even healthy food, especially during the pandemic. And the pandemic has amplified uh, so many of the things that have fallen through the cracks. So we uh, have partnered with um, food and restaurant suppliers and, and restaurants to provide healthy food for families. Um, we also, uh, in that wellness center, uh, we provide physical exercise as well. And we recently have added um, a full service uh, therapy uh, component uh, for, for students and families. Um, uh, on the, my role is as associate director is I am the liaison between our school district, nonprofits, faith community, and the, the business sector to provide um, more than systems of advocacy, but relational, if I could put a, a, a huge emphasis on that, relational uh, uh, systems of advocacy. Uh, I was just at a conference a couple weeks ago, and uh, the speaker from the stage stated that people don't need systems, they need relationship. And uh, that, is, that is the how I bleed. Uh, another uh, uh, brother shared from the, from the stage that the body of Christ revolves on the axis of relationship. All that we, it must be relationship. It, it, it's more than statements, more than preaching. It is presence. And uh, so I also serve on uh, an executive uh, board called the uh, Clergy Community Coalition. And we are clergy that are engaged in relationally serving our city and bring, bringing transformative change. Uh, uh, as I was sharing at, at, through text message with Jeff yesterday, I, I was just returning from San Diego. I also serve as the Southern California liaison for an organization called the DeVos Urban Leadership Initiative. Uh, uh, these very generous uh, individuals realized that the average um, inner city or urban youth pastor, youth director was without resources and only lasting in their work three to five years and saw that there were many factors in, involved with that and, and believed that if they could um, take individuals through a learning process to make up for what they were lacking, that it would increase the, uh, their sustainable reach in their, and so, um, which brings us to today's message because we were interviewing uh, over three days, multiple candidates for this, and the amount of trauma. Um, 
and I, I even think about my own life uh, as I as I share this, the amount of trauma that individuals have endured and continue to endure as they are serving um, those who are overlooked and ignored, uh, and a, and how that is heightened during the pandemic cannot uh, just be expressed. But, 50% of what we were doing was interviews and 50% of it was ministering life just into these individuals as they were uh, tearfully sharing their uh, their faith journey. Uh, so when Jeff asked me to share on this subject, it was just right on time uh, because I when I hear the title, I think of my own life. I was born 1960. And because I look like the product of a mixed race marriage, I was called, treat, not just treated as, but even spoken to as an abomination because of how individuals read the Bible and believed that I was the, an abominable byproduct of a mixed race marriage. So uh, I wanna uh, speak with you today um, about a more excellent way as we talk about I am human, don't hate me. So I'm going to ask that um, uh, that you go directly to the third slide um, uh, on, on the PowerPoint, Exodus 12, verses 40 through 41. And it reads, the people of Israel had lived in Egypt for 430 years. In fact, it was on the last day of the 430th year that all the Lord's forces left the land. Now, the reason I'm, I'm presenting that particular verse is to understand the context of this when I start uh, sharing about trauma. Imagine a people living 430 years under slavery. And wondering where was God in all of their suffering and living under a religious rule uh, because Pharaoh was not just considered the leader, he was considered God to the people. And so imagine for 430 years of people believing that the will of God was to be slaves, was to be uh, uh, mistreated, was uh, to be demonized, to be tortured, to be killed. So then is it, is, and I, I, I think because we're, we're Westerners, we, we read through uh, stories like the, the children of Israel as they are leaving Egyptian bondage and going, well, why, why, why were they complaining all the time? Why were they making statements about wouldn't it have been better for us if we stayed in Egypt? But you have to understand what trauma does to an individual, which brings us uh, to that um, that next slide. As I as I mentioned trauma, I want to go to a statement from uh, best-selling author uh, Resma Menakem who is the, uh, the author of, a, of, of the book, uh, My Grandmother's Hands. He's a therapist, he's a trauma specialist, and he makes this statement. Many times 
trauma in a person decontextualized, meaning uh, to remove from the context, to uh, um, considered in isolation from the context. So many times trauma in a person being removed from the context of the trauma over time can look like personality. Trauma in a family decontextualized over time can look like family traits. And trauma decontextualized in a people over time can look like culture. If we go to the next slide, uh, a large part of my work during, um, well, even prior to the pandemic, as we are serving marginalized youth, um, we were introduced to what's called trauma-informed care. And uh, this was a study uh, that came out of Kaiser Permanente um, about the, the adverse effects of childhood experiences, adverse childhood experiences. And so when you look at this next slide, uh, as they did research with children and with adults uh, about what they had experienced in their childhood, there are these, are, which is known now as ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, uh, there are 10 different things that they consider and uh, in their survey to determine uh, how many of these factors did a child experience in their childhood. So in that next slide, um, there are, uh, did they experience abuse? Did they experience physical abuse? Did they experience emotional abuse? Did they experience sexual abuse? And then neglect, did they experience physical or emotional neglect? And then household dysfunction, did they experience mental illness? an incarcerated relative, mother treated violently, substance abuse, and divorce. Why is this so important? In that next slide, it says that as the number of ACEs increases, so does the risk for negative health outcomes. Uh, in that next slide, you see that a student with an ACE score of three is three times more likely to experience academic failure, five times as likely to have attendance issues, six times as likely to exhibit school behavior problems. And this moves on in their childhood and into adulthood. In that next slide, you'll see how that manifests in behavior, lack of physical activity, smoking, alcoholism, drug use, missed work, and in physical and mental health, severe, obes severe obesity, diabetes, depression, suicide attempts, sexually transmitted diseases, heart disease, cancer, stroke, COPD, which is respiratory diseases, and broken bones. Now, why is why was this uh, so impactful? Because when I looked at my ACEs score, when I looked at those 10 different things, my score was nine. And a light bulb went on in terms of what was happening to me both then and in my adult life 
emotionally, physically, uh, especially that one regarding COPD, um, um, respiratory diseases, I had incurable asthma. Uh, and I was constantly rushed to the hospital, prescribed medication, which would only work for three weeks. And then the asthma would, be, would grow greater than the medication. And I continued that cycle all the way until I was 20. Now, what happened when I was 20? my parents relocated to another city. Why is that important? Because my father was a extremely abusive, um, my father was a law enforcement officer who was abusive to his community and abusive to his family. And uh, it was only uh, in, in these uh, last two years uh, I was dealing with a, a physical ailment in my body and didn't, it was very familiar to something that I was experiencing in my teen years. And when I spoke with my mother about it, I remember being rushed to the hospital. And so I thought, well, maybe this is somehow connected to what happened in my teenage years. And so when I spoke with my mother and asked her, hey, mom, uh, when I was rushed to the hospital, um, this is what I remember. And she said, no, that's not what happened. What happened was that your father recently was um, came off duty. He was still um, in his gear, came home, saw you, went into a rage, and began beating you. You ran under the kitchen table or the, the dining room table and, ball, and uh, curled up into a ball to avoid the blows. And your father repeatedly kicked you in your groin. And um, that caused uh, testicular distortion, um, and you were rushed to the hospital for that. I have no memory. Now, I, I do remember multiple situations where my father was physically and um, verbally abusive. I do not remember. I remember being in the hospital. I do not remember those circumstances. And so I, uh, it immediately, and if we could go to that next slide, um, the key thing about trauma-informed care, the, the question is not what is wrong with that child, not what is wrong with that person, but in that next slide, the question is what happened to that child. And this, is where I, I now speak to the church and speak with, to clergy so much about uh, in regards to uh, churches that are wanting to serve students on, on campus, is that for too long the church has come from an approach of what is wrong with you, which is judgment and condemnation versus a viewpoint and a lens of understanding and love by asking what happened to that person. I uh, we well, well let's go to that next slide uh, from second corinthians five sixteen in the in the Phillips translation. It says this means that our knowledge of men can no longer be based on their outward lives, 
Indeed, even though we knew Christ as a man, we do not know him like that any longer. We have to have a different lens. We have to have a better theology in serving people. And so for a moment, I just want to uh, talk about it. the Imago Day, the image, seeing people through the lens that they are the image and likeness of God. Uh, Jesus under, understood this, that we are all created as the image and likeness of God. Um, and when we when we look at the story in Luke in regards to the lawyer who was trying to trick Jesus up and ask him what is the greatest commandment and Jesus responds that it is to love the Lord your God. Love. Love is what I'm going to be talking about a lot in this, that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our mind, heart, soul, and, and, and might. And then Jesus said, and like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer seeking to justify himself, the scriptures clearly say that, seeking to justify himself, asked the question, and who is my neighbor? What he was asking is who can I treat less than the image and likeness of God? Why do I know that? Because in the very next verse, Jesus tells a story of a Samaritan. And again, you know, because we, we live in the United States and uh there are good Samaritan medals. There are good Samaritan hospitals. We don't realize the context of what Jesus was sharing. Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. They, they saw them as filthy. They saw them as sinful. They, they saw them as reprehensible. And Jesus tells a story to make his point that the individual that embodies the love of God was the Samaritan who cared for the, the individual who had been beaten and left by the, the wayside, while those who represented the church walked past him and rendered no aid. I have on a t-shirt, I'm going to uh, stand for a little bit so you can see it, bad theology kills. We need good theology. And as we as we look through history, we, we have to have a lens that everything that has its being is through the love of God. God is love. God created the universe. God created humankind in love. And so therefore, our lens must be one of love and not one of hate. I have a, a dear friend, and let me, and I'm, I lost my place for a moment because I had my slides right next to me as I was doing all of this. So now I have, <laughs> I lost my place in not knowing where my slides are, not where the message is, but just where my slides are, but that is okay. Um, uh, I have a dear friend, Marcos Canales, a pastor, who said we need that throughout history, what we see is that individuals need a theology of violence in order to justify committing violence against the image of God, against the Imago Dei. Um, and as 
Marcos and I were talking about this and talking about the quote uh, that I mentioned earlier about trauma being decontextualized. He said, and Eric, what does that mean for the church? And I said, well, as I think about that, um, trauma in a church decontextualized over time looks like theology. And a theology of violence is always used to mistreat the Imago Dei. Historically, uh, through well, in Genesis chapter 4, Cain kills Abel over worship. Over how one's worship was accepted over another. And in 1 Kings 21, Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard and pouted when Naboth wouldn't give him the vineyard. And Jezebel gave him advice. Call a fast. Call the nation into a, a, into a fast. We're going to use God as a, con as a context around uh, the, the way to get you what you want, because you want this man's vineyard. You want this man's field. So let's call a fast. And then call out false witnesses against him, saying that he is ungodly, and murder him and take his field. In, in the year 1271, Thomas Aquinas says this, and, and this is going to lead to what we've known historically as the doctrine of discovery. Thomas Aquinas says, on the part of the church, however, there is mercy which looks to the conversion of the wanderer, wherefore she condemns not at once, but after the first and second admonition, as the apostle directs, after that, if he is yet stubborn, stubborn, the church no longer hoping for his conversion looks to the salvation of others by excommunicating him and separating him from the church and furthermore delivers him to the secular tribunal to be exterminated therefore from the world by death. This philosophy in 1271 became the doctrine of discovery. Beginning in 1452, um, the church adopted by um, this, this decree uh, by the European Christian nations for the purpose of providing them a legal cover to pillage and destroy non-white civilizations around the world the citizens of which were indiscriminately slaughtered by the tens of thousands enslaved, raped, and dehumanized. The actual doctrine of discovery says, with regard to heretics, two points must be observed. One, on their own side. The other, on the side of the church. On their side, on their own side, there is the sin whereby they deserve not only to be separated from the church by excommunication, but also to be severed, severed, excuse me, from the world by death. For it is much graver, for it is a much graver matter to corrupt the faith, which quickens the soul, than to forge money, which supports the temporal life. So in other words, they're saying that if someone doesn't immediately receive Christ, they deserve not only excommunication, they deserve to be exterminated. In 1670, Blaise Pascal said, men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it 
from religious conviction. This has been played out throughout history. This has been played out in our own nation. When we consider that Thomas Jefferson, a slave owner, when he wrote these words in the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We today, looking back at those words, believe that he was speaking about the Imago Dei, but he was not. He was speaking to the wealthy landowners. When he says all men, he's talking about himself and those like him. He is not talking about those who are in indentured slavery, those who are, um, who are in um, the other forms of slavery. He was only speaking to men like himself. And throughout history, we've heard things just like what I've shared before, that slavery was the missional will of God. We needed slavery to, uh, to save the heathens in Africa. Um, that, uh, that manifest destiny, we use manifest destiny to slaughter uh, uh, the indigenous peoples of our land, saying that it was the will of God for our nation to be joined from one coast to another in order financially to build the railroads. And then in my own lifetime, how I was treated in my own lifetime, constantly hearing from church people that a woman deserves a good hit every now and then to keep them in their place. And that we told a, a we told women in abusive marriages, that they had to take it and be submitted to that. We always need a theology of violence in order to oppress someone else. And as I even think of the queer community, prior to 1946, the words that we read in the Bible now that say homosexual, Prior to 1946, that word meant pederasty. It meant those who, who committed violent rape towards children. I don't know any queer believers that are rapists. But yet, that mistranslation, and there's an entire documentary that is getting ready to come out, around 1946 and um, the revised standard, no, was it, no, the New American Standard Bible in 1946, as they were uh, walking through this, this piece of translation, um, there, was a, there was a seminary student who shared with them after this was published that I believe that you've, you mistranslated this. And the translation team in looking back said, you know what, you are, you're right, uh, we will revise it next year. But the publisher said, we are not doing any revisions for 10 years. And every uh, Bible society after that for 10 years believed that because due, they believed that because due diligence had been done in their research, there was no reason for them to research and continued to use this, uh, this, uh, this 
translation of the word homosexual to demonize others. In 1 Corinthians 12, and I'm going to take one more moment to look for Here we go. Oops. Here we go. First Corinthians 12, verse 31. And yet I will show you a still more excellent way, one that is better by far and the brightest of them all, love, which goes directly, Paul's thought goes directly into 1 Corinthians 13. If I can speak in the tongues of men and even of angels, but have not love, that reasoning, intentional, spiritual devotion, such as inspired by God's love for and in us, I am only a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers, the gift of interpreting the divine will and purpose, and understand all the secrets, secret truths and mysteries, and possesses all knowledge, and if I have sufficient faith so that I can remove mountains and have not love, God's love in me, I am nothing, a useless nobody. Even if I dole out all that I have to the poor in providing food, and if I surrender my body to be burned, or in order that I may glory, but not love, God's love in me, I gain nothing. Love endures long and is patient and kind. Love never is envious nor boils over with jealousy, is not boastful or vainglorious, does not display itself haughtily. It is not conceited, arrogant, and inflated with pride. It is not rude, unmannerly, and does not act unbecomingly. Love, God's love in us, does not insist on its own rights or its own way. For it is not self-seeking. It is not touchy or fretful or resentful. It takes no account of the evil done to it, and it pays no attention to a suffered wrong. It does not rejoice at injustice and unrighteousness but rejoices when right and truth prevail. Love bears up under anything and everything that comes, is ever ready to believe the best of every person. Its hopes are faithless under all circumstances, and it endures everything without weakening. Love never fails, never fades out, or becomes obsolete, or comes to an end. In 1 John 4, 7 and 8, it reads, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And in verses 20 and 21, Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. 
For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God who they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. My brothers and sisters, we need a theology of love. We need a theology that sees every person as the image and likeness of God and serves them accordingly. There's an old adage that I hear time and time again, especially when it comes to serving one another in our community. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. There has been too much violence being done in the name of Christ. And people are hungering. They are looking. Just, just recently in our, in our own community, uh, uh, one of my long childhood friends who was a city councilman, um, we grew up in church together, loving man of God, passed away. Um, and as they were looking for candidates to replace this individual, the, the community uh, in public comment spoke uh, continuously about uh, a, a particular pastor in the city not being considered to be a candidate. And why was that? Because his lens was constantly and publicly judging other people with a lens of what is wrong with you instead of coming alongside people in love to find out what happened to you. This is the people, this is the church that our world is looking for. And with that, I will pause and ready to take questions. And I have a microphone ready for anybody that would uh, like to ask anything of uh, Pastor Eric. You can type it into the chat if you do. Go ahead, and uh, those of you that are watching by live stream, you can type it into the chat, or you can send it via text to 720-878-8899, or you can use Nina's number, and she'll forward it, 720-878-3323. Here in the sanctuary, is there anybody that has a question you'd like to ask of our guest? Okay, Matt? Yeah, so this last week we, um, uh, we had the election, and there's a lot of uh, anger and hatred. Um, I think a lot on both sides, but you kind of look at uh, across the country, people f were talking about this red wave that was coming. Um, and it almost is 
always tied to religion and belief. Um, what do you have to say about um, politics and religion and, and, and what and what is currently going on in our country? Jeff, would you repeat it for me that I, I hear like an echo okay. when it's okay. So with all that's gone on, I'll, I'll attempt <coughs> with all that's gone on, especially this week in our country, yes. uh, the supposed red wave we were supposed to experience, uh, the whole political climate that uh, over the past couple of years, then uh, Matt, you would say, what was the question? So much of that is attached to religion. Yes. Um, Christian nationalism. Yes. We know is is beginning to be addressed like never before. So, what would be your thoughts on that, Pastor? It. I, <laughs> my. So. I'll, I'll take our nonprofit for example. Um, and what this this situation that just happened uh, in our city in regards to the appointing of a of a new city council person, it is because of the behavior that we see across our country, very hate charged be, uh, language in the name of Christ. Uh, I, I don't know any other way to say it. There's when. When hundreds of people on January 6th, in the name of Christ, violently charge the capital, our nation's capital, our, a law enforcement officer, and, it, and this is not, I'm only speaking to the actions that ha have happened. I'm not choosing one party over another party, but when a party says that they are pro-law and order, pro-law enforcement, and violently and destructively are on a mission, not for advocacy, not for justice, but for violence. That is not Christ. And, and so it's 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 up to it's up to us to to model Christ. Um, love does uh, again from from uh, from the Amplified Bible. Love does not rejoice at injustice. And when we lose the ability to listen, have conversation. But believe in that just as this has gone on through history, there is no difference between what happened on January 6th and what has happened historically in our nation in around the world from what I just just read. It it does not reflect Christ. It is anti-Christ. Yeah. I really agree with that. Um is it possible for you to see the Imago Day pastor in a Republican? Is it yes? Is it possible for you to see the Imago Day in a Democrat? Yes. Do you see Imago Day in the LGBTQ plus individual? Yes. 
Do do you see Imago Day in? I mean, pick pick your tribe, pick your behavior, pick your brokenness, pick your successful corporate exec. Uh, I mean, is there any difference? Which is why I called this series "I Am Human," and and that began with a story as I related to you that I uh, shared in the first sermon, first message. It was actually a post, a Facebook post, um, almost a decade ago by a woman and a couple, she's married, who had a, a four children who knew by the age of 12 that he was gay. And he came out to his parents. And it started a it, it it started a whirlwind of uh mistreatment and setbacks and verbiage and application of Christian, you know, violence, really, uh, yes. you know, to, to 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 change this person. And then long story short, they wound up losing him. But by that time, within those six, seven years of God changing their heart to view their son in the Imago Dei image of God, here's, here's what she wrote in that story. God told her that she was to love him and love his boyfriends just because they breathe. <laughs> just because they're breathing. And, and that's so, t I cried reading that story. Shared that in the first message in this series. And I hope that everybody captures what you're saying. And just that phrase, just because they breathe and understands, no matter who you're standing in front of or watching on television or sitting beside on the bus or in class together with as a fellow employee, or work beside as a fellow, um, a, a fellow student, excuse me, or work beside as a fellow employee. They are breathing. They are human, and they are the Imago Dei. E everything else comes after that. <laughs> everything we form in our opinion, in our belief, in our, in our desire to love, to serve, and to help somebody comes after Imago Dei. I mean, is that what you're saying? Yes, yes. I, I, so I, I think of three quick stories. One is our, our former president. Um, uh, Jane Fonda was being interviewed right before a documentary of her life was coming out, and reporters were asking her, hey, we know uh, um, that you once dated the former president. What was that like? And they were looking for you know, uh, juicy comments. And Jane said, you know, if any, any reasonable person can look and see the trauma of in that family and see how broken they are and what he's endured, is there any wonder how this plays out in his life? And I, I just immediately started bawling. I said, gosh, Jane, look, you're, you're just, and I, I, I personally, one of my my dear friends, um, Jane was her um, uh, adopted mother, um, and just 
practice Christ-likeness in her life. Uh, uh, and when I say this dear friend, this dear friend uh, is a pastor. Um, and I, I, you know, sometimes we, we, we just look at people in Hollywood and just go, oh, they're just so wicked and so sinful and everything. But I see so much of Jane modeling Christ-likeness and, and the love of God. And, and, and she had every opportunity to make a political statement about our former president and instead chose with compassion to talk about the brokenness. And that immediately caused me to have compassion. Uh, what you just shared about um, uh, the, the story that you shared, I, ha I have a similar one that I shared with you. Uh, the summer school that we, we run a summer school on behalf of our school district now for 14 years. And in that first year, um, there was a, a workshop session on, on value, on, on self-esteem and value. And uh, students were asked to, uh, they were all given price tags and to write, you know, what your value is on it. And there was a student that wrote nothing. And one of the leaders of the school just burst into tears and said, what is going on in that young man's life that he sees no value in himself? And I thought, oh, well, let's do this. Why don't we share why we do the work that we do? And when, let's do that with all of the students in our, in our last session. And so in doing that, I shared my story of coming through abuse and molestation. And a young man came up to me and, and said, how did you forgive your father? And then began to share his story with me. He was gay. Um, and at that time, in the 10th grade, he was um, taking public transportation two cities away from a shelter to get to school every day. The reason why that was happening is because when he came out to his parents, both of who are divorced, uh, his father, a church elder, his mother, a, a church goer, when he came out to his parents, his mother tried to drown him. His father beat him with the back end of a butcher knife. I... And we began a relationship. He's um, now, uh, he asked me to be his mentor. We, we have a lifelong relationship. Um, but these are the things that are viewed as justifiable when there is poisonous theology. Bad theology kills. I, I just cannot say that enough. And then on the, on the other side of it, uh, uh, in, in the pandemic, uh, when we realized the scarcity of food, I, I went to the superintendent and said, hey, I, I know that there are seven schools that are open uh, for food distribution, but it's happening at 10 a.m. And so many of our 66 percent of our school district is low income. They're working in this pandemic and don't have time at 10 a.m. to leave work and pick up food for their children. So when I when I pointed this out, I said we we will find the the parents that cannot the homes where they cannot get there can and we will can we pick up the food from you and deliver it to the families. The the first day we had ten, the next day we had fifty. In one week we were delivering over a thousand meals a day, and we needed drivers. When we put out that call, the church that I am at now, uh, which is uh, uh, 
a, we celebrate the queer community. I, I want you to know out of all the churches that we put that call out to, it was that church and it was the queer members of that church that immediately said, how can we serve? How can we support this? And he, and just, oh, we don't, we don't mind. We'll, we'll, we'll drive wherever you need us. Just immediately responded in that way. And then when uh, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd were murdered, and there was a, a protest, uh, a, a, a huge protest in Los Angeles, our church immediately canceled service. And it was those queer members that were at the forefront advocating about our lives at, at the forefront. I, we have to see the image of God in everyone. We and expect, expect the divine to speak to us in each and every person. Yes. I, I think people, Eric, can understand better now why when I held you in a hug, there really wasn't anything to say. We, we just cried. I have one last question, and we're going to celebrate communion. Okay. This question says, um, how can an everyday individual put this message into effect? So, Pastor, just in the... In the last moment here, practically speaking, how, how can we make a difference? Give, it, give us some steps. How can we make this situation different? I, uh, the practical step number one is um, I'm, I'm going to say number one, take some time to talk to God. Takes, have some quiet time with God uh, to open up your eyes to opportunities. So many times we're blinded to the opportunities that are around us every day and ask God to open your eyes to those who are in need around you. Just simple acts of kindness. Walk your, walk, take a walk around your community and, and just be aware of those who may be in need of love or, or whatever it is. And then when you are in a conversation, and I strongly say in a conversation, listen, listen, take time to come alongside an individual and listen. Ask clarifying questions um, and let, the, the best thing you can do for any person is let them know that they are seen, heard, and loved. Just to say, I am so sorry that you've gone through what you've gone through. Um, and, I, and, and you just may say, I, I'm helpless. I, I'm not exactly sure what is the right thing to do. But how can I come alongside you? How can I just be of support? And many times, especially with students, just you taking the time to listen. Those are just three very practical things. Beautiful. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome.
Thank you. All the way from California. <laughs> if if you were standing here right now, I'd hug you again. No, man. I yeah, I you know how much I love you all dearly. 